0: You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm your host, Mark Brisley. Has there been a day in 2022 where we haven't heard about soaring inflation rising interest rates, war in Europe, an energy crunch, probably not. But all of these have seen valuations plunge across all asset classes in 2022. I guess we could describe 2022 as a simple tale of inflation shock causing rate shock, which in turn is threatening recession shock and potential credit events. All of that to summarize that the inflation shock probably ain't over. The low inflation of the last four decades does appear to be over and a new era of sustained inflationary pressures and rising bond yields is upon us. Investors who weren't around for the high inflation, low growth environment of the 1970s are actually seeing a loss in purchasing power for the first time in many of their lives. So now may be the perfect time to prepare for and understand more about how rising interest rates are affecting client bond portfolios. It's also a good time for us to emphasize a key point. Over the long haul, Higher yields can mean more income from the fixed income portion of client portfolios. To unpack some of the issues of the day, I'm joined by Senior Portfolio Manager here at Dynamic Funds, Derek Amory. Derek brings over 20 years of investment industry experience to our core fixed income team with a focus on Canadian fixed income portfolio management and is a member of a team that manages close to $42 billion in fixed income assets for the retail, institutional, and private client channels. So, Derek... Can we start with you speaking to some of the issues facing investors in particular on you know central banks attempting to walk the line between combating inflation while also keeping us out of a recession.
1: Thanks Mark and uh, as you pointed out you know I've been doing this uh, actually almost 30 years so while I've been doing it for the better part of three decades uh, I am certainly one of those investors that wasn't around in the 70s or 80s for those uh, peak inflationary periods and the impacts that they had on markets but you know, I have certainly seen a number of market cycles, and I hope to to help you unpack, as you say, some of the issues that investors are facing, particularly in fixed income markets. You know, we talked about inflation leading to recession fears, and if I guess if I had to say, you know, maybe the biggest issue that um, investors are facing is that walking the line, as you described it, between combating inflation and uh, keeping us out of recession. Uh, if I use uh, Chairman Powell's own words. You know, he talks about the narrow path to a soft landing. And while I'm, you know, one of the most optimistic bond managers you'll ever speak to, uh, I would say that that path is getting narrower by the day. You know, I do a a monthly survey of the portfolio managers on the core fixed income team at Dynamic. And at the moment, that survey has uh, recession risks at just a little under 50%. And I might personally shade that a little bit higher. So you know, at this point, I would say that recession is probably in our base case. Again, I'm usually one of the more optimistic portfolio managers, but uh, again, I, I'm I'm looking at the outlook now and questioning whether central banks will be able to navigate that line and keep us out of recession, as you say. So I think that's probably the biggest issue. You know, and as Miles Ziblock, our chief strategist, has talked about, you know, recession uh, brings with a number of challenges for investors. And one kind of simple way that he puts it, and I think it's quite useful, is that if we can avoid a recession, then the necessary and sufficient conditions for a market bottom is simply to have a shift in monetary policy. However, if we don't avoid a recession, then you need both a shift in policy as well as an improvement in the macro fundamentals. And I would argue that if we are going to go into a recession, and as I say, that's likely you know even odds at this point, you know we may be a little you know some ways away from seeing both a shift in policy as well as an improvement in the macro fundamentals but even in the absence of a recession we're going to need to see a policy shift before we can have markets on you know more firm footing and on that front you know i think that it's difficult to envision that we're going to see a policy pivot in the next few months anyways given the strength of the labor market the persistence in inflation rates again both headline and core inflation and we'll talk probably about a little bit more about that Uh, you know, it's tough to imagine uh, that we're going to see uh, a pivot in policy that, as I say, would be at least a necessary, if not a necessary and sufficient condition for markets to rally on a sustained basis. You know, if you look at policy expectations, you know, for the Fed's fund rate in the U.S., you know, at the moment, the market's expecting to see a terminal rate in the four and three quarters to five percent range. Uh, and that the Fed funds rate will stay above 4.5% through 2023. You know, given where policy rates are today, um, you know, that doesn't really, in my mind, fit the definition of a pivot uh, or, you know, even a pause in policy rates. So I do think that the hopes that the markets have had periodically over the last couple of months for a Fed pivot, you know, obviously those have been a little bit early, and have proven to be a little overly optimistic, and I would argue that uh, you know we're still, for the foreseeable future, in a policy tightening environment, and that's gonna present challenges not only for financial markets, but ultimately it's gonna be a challenging environment uh, for the economy, and we're likely to see a growth contraction at some point in 2023. Um, I guess the other issue that's kind of related to that is what we're seeing in, in Europe, Uh, Obviously, you would expect to see quite a difficult environment in Europe for the next 12, maybe even the next 24 months. That region is likely either in recession or very close to a recession. You know, the energy crisis is taking a tremendous toll in Europe. And, you know, there's a good chance that the, the energy crisis situation will actually be worse next winter than what it is going to be this winter, uh, you know, and that's putting a lot of pressure both on fiscal and monetary policymakers uh, in Europe. Uh, you know, we saw kind of an example of that in the UK, where you actually saw fiscal policymakers looking at stimulative policies, while obviously the monetary policy authorities are continuing to take out stimulus. So you had fiscal and monetary policy kind of working at odds with one another. Uh, and I think you're likely to see the same kind of dynamics more broadly in Europe. Uh, obviously, not quite the same situation as what you had in the UK, but clearly with uh, what you're seeing in energy prices and the toll it's taking on both consumers and businesses in Europe, uh, you know, you're know, you likely to see increased pressure on policymakers to try to address and, and shoulder some of that burden. Um, and so you're likely going to have fiscal policy measures that are more stimulative in nature while at the same time, you're going to continue to see you know, the ECB and the Bank of England continue to look to remove monetary stimulus to try to combat inflation. So again, that kind of tug of war between what you're seeing on the policy front in Europe is likely to mean that you're going to actually have to see higher policy rates in Europe to combat inflation um, than you would otherwise have seen in the absence of, of fiscal stimulus and that's obviously going to continue to be a very challenging or or a more difficult and even more challenging environment for the European economy. So overall, as I say, I think the biggest issue that that investors are facing is how to navigate what is likely to be a recessionary environment in, in most developed markets. Again, I would argue, and again, I'm not trying to sound too pessimistic, um, but I would say that markets probably haven't fully priced in that recessionary scenario. Um, you know, earnings outlooks that you know, have come down or still, I I would say, overly optimistic, you know, we'll likely see uh, an earnings contraction next year. And that's not yet in the consensus forecasts. I would say similarly, you know, if you look at, at risk premiums, whether they be in equity markets or in credit markets, obviously they've improved and they're pricing in a certain percentage of probability of recession. But I would argue they're not fully pricing in a recession. So I think both overall on the outlook, I'm still defensive. And on on asset class valuations, I would similarly be defensive. So I think those are probably the biggest issues in my mind that that investors need to try to, again, unpack, as you say, and, and try to navigate.
0: You know, one of the subjects that's probably hard for a a lot of investors to separate is the Wall Street versus Main Street idea, whereas inflation pressures having an impact on portfolios, but certainly on household balance sheets as well. And it wasn't that long ago, you know, we were talking about whether this post-pandemic inflation was transitory. The Fed has clearly admitted that that was just a wrong assessment and that ultimately their delayed policy response, as you outlined in a recent commentary, to that persistently high inflation was a mistake. If we look at things now in your opinion where do you think we are in terms of inflation being at a peak or is there more room to go
1: Where we are now is kind of central banks trying to avoid going to the last stage of evolution in inflation where you move from being persistent to being entrenched and obviously that's uh, you know the worst stage of that evolution that you can get into you know I would argue that you know the recent data would suggest you know we've hopefully seen the peak at least at in headline inflation you know albeit barely Headline inflation has moderated a little bit, Uh, again, and most of my comments will focus on U.S. inflation just being how important it is for driving global financial markets. Obviously, we have seen the data roll over a little bit at the headline level. You know, many leading inflation indicators would also appear to support that hypothesis. You know, you've got commodity prices that have declined, you know, as have break-even inflation rates. Uh, You know, they've also come down. You've had, uh, you know, shipping and freight costs uh, have also, you know, kind of moderated, you know, retail inventory levels are on the rise, you know, kind of the inventory sales ratios would point to, um, you know, a moderating of inflation pressures going forward. You know, so there are signs that the worst in headline inflation is behind us. You know, having said that, obviously, it wouldn't take too much of a rebound in energy prices, as we've seen in the last two weeks, or kind of ongoing uh, upward pressure on food prices, you know, to kind of you know, nip that moderation in headline inflation in, in the bud quite quickly. Um, where I think the outlook gets a little bit more problematic is the outlook for core inflation. That certainly has yet to peak. You know, if you look at core U.S. Uh, CPI, um, you know, it printed uh, 6.6% for September last week, and that clearly has not peaked. Um, you know, moreover, if you look at the six-month annualized rate of U.S. core CPI, it was running at 8.5% last month. You know, so clearly that's um, at worrying levels uh, for the Fed. And you know, when you kind of look beneath the surface at some of the underlying drivers of that uh, high core inflation, you do see risks that it could be more persistent than obviously most of us, as consumers and certainly as central bankers, would hope for. You know, one of the biggest components for core pricing is shelter costs, and the biggest weight in shelter costs is rents, in particular, owner's equivalent rent. Uh, and again, there's been a lot of debate about how they calculate owner's equivalent rent. Um, and we can you know, talk about that another day. Um, but what we've seen in recent months is that owner's equivalent rent that, again, makes up about a quarter of core CPI um, has been very highly correlated with housing affordability and therefore mortgage rates. And with mortgage rates at uh, you know 40-year highs and affordability at record lows, essentially people who just can't afford to buy a house are forced to continue to rent. Uh, and that's keeping upward pressure on owner's equivalent rent within the CPI measures. So, you know, yes, the housing market is slowing. You know, we are seeing housing prices decline uh, and that's ultimately going to feed into, you know, owner's equivalent rent, into shelter costs, and into core CPI, but that's going to happen with a lag. So that element of core CPI is at risk of being more persistent than we'd like to see it. Similarly, you know, unit labor costs are also worryingly high. Um, you know, look at some measures like the employment cost index running north of 5%. The Atlanta Fed has a wage growth tracker that it measures and it's showing, you know, wage growth just below 7%. You know, obviously these are pretty concerning numbers with respect to fears that the Federal Reserve would have about a wage price spiral, which again is a key driver of that kind of going from persistent to entrenched inflation, is that wage price dynamic. And so, you know, the central banks are going to be looking and have been very clear that they would like to see. More slack in the labor market as a way to to moderate inflationary pressures. And really, on that point, we haven't really seen a lot of signs to date of moderating in the labor market and getting to a better demand supply balance that you would need to see to kind of moderate some of those labor costs. The unemployment rate in the U.S. is at record lows. You know, you haven't seen a meaningful pickup yet in the weekly jobless claims numbers. Um, You know, there's still almost 1.8 job openings for every one employed person in in the U.S. And we also haven't seen that participation rate get back to levels where it was prior to the pandemic. So again, all those are kind of pointing to what are likely to be some stickiness in labor costs. Then you add that to the stickiness in shelter costs. And uh, again, it it could be an environment where core prices may mean we may not have seen the peak there. And again, it kind of leads into what may be a more important question even if we have seen the peak in inflation, you know, what do central banks do if we see inflation rates moderate from, you know, the headline level at eight and the core level at six and a half? What happens if they moderate, but to say four and a half to five, and then kind of plateau there? You know, what's their reaction function to the fact that yes, we've seen the peak in inflation, but it remains persistently above uh, or or well above, you know, their 2% target level. So that could be a a difficult environment for the Federal Reserve and, and other central banks globally in terms of how they balance those risks to growth while still combating hopefully not yet entrenched inflation.
0: You know, you talk about a difficult environment for central bankers and policymakers. So you think about the environment going down channel then to the retail investor, and and just how difficult it has been. I saw a chart last week. I think it was from Bloomberg that talked about a period where both stock and bond indices being sort of in similar territories only three times since 1926 up until 2022. I think being 1931, 1969, and now this year, where they've both been in negative territory at the same time. That's really putting pressure on portfolios. So. When we think about the retail investor, we leave the equity portion of their portfolio to one side, and when they're thinking about fixed income going forward, uh, how can they best navigate this?
1: As you said, uh, you know, obviously, the kind of stagflation or low-growth, high-inflation environment is a difficult one for all asset classes. Thankfully, that's not an environment that we've been in very often. In terms of you know how to best navigate the fixed income market at the moment, my advice would be, again, I, I would at this point continue to stay defensive. And if possible, you know, kind of stay liquid in order to take advantage of opportunities that I see as we move through uh, 2023. You know, again, while I've been arguing why the environment for fixed income, at least in the near term, might remain challenging. You know, I think there are going to be some tremendous opportunities in the asset class at some point next year. You know, as I talked about in terms of what the policy expectations were with the terminal rate now expected to be, again, you know, in the neighborhood of 5% and uh, the policy rate remaining above 4.5% for most of next year. You know, that's a dynamically different environment from where we were just a couple of months ago where the market was expecting the terminal rate to be only 3.5% and to see rate cuts in the neighborhood of three or four rate cuts next year. Again, I think that that was the market getting well ahead of the Fed. At the moment, those policy expectations that I just described, where they are currently, I think are much closer to what the reality will be. And with it, we've seen, you know, obviously, bond yields move higher in concert with those policy expectations. And while that's obviously been a challenging environment for returns this year, obviously, we're much closer now to what I think is fair value in the rates market. With U.S. ten-year uh, yields in the neighborhood of four percent, I think that's much more closely aligned with what we're going to see on the policy side. And I think as we move through next year, and as the market begins to anticipate a more realistic timeline for a shift in policy, that we uh, you know we're setting up for yields to decline towards the the second half of next year. So I think you, you're going to want to as much as possible try to keep you know your powder dry to take advantage of that. Similarly, on the credit side, well, I think there is risks that credit valuations could widen a little further you know, as we move into a downturn. Uh, you know, If you look at where credit spreads are historically, we're at levels that are very good risk-reward entry points in a non-recessionary environment. So again, I think we're getting to the point where the markets are pricing in a much more realistic uh, scenario, uh, both for policy as well as for the economy. And I think that's gonna set up fixed income markets uh, with some opportunities next year, both on the rate side, as well as on the credit side. So as much as possible, again, just in the very near term, I I think it would be prudent to stay defensive, but I think you wanna position yourself to take advantage of these opportunities, um, You know, kind of uh, the early part of next year, when I think uh, the outlook for fixed income markets are going to be you know much more uh, positive.
0: That's an interesting point. You know when you say defensive, uh, you know staying liquid, keeping some powder dry, as you put it. You know on the other hand of that, cash is compelling. GICs are kind of compelling right now. But I don't think you're suggesting either that you just you know stay completely out of the market. It's just be ready for opportunity.
1: Yeah, as I say, I think it's being ready for opportunities that are going to present themselves. You know from a investment horizon in the very short term so yes, you can you know stay liquid maybe stay in cash but you want to have the ability to not you don't want to lock in that liquidity in a product necessarily like a GIC where you don't have the ability to exercise on those opportunities as they present themselves because I do think they're going to present themselves you know in very short order here particularly when you look at uh, what an investor's time horizon should be
0: which is kind of another way of saying don't go long on liquidity exactly. I guess I wanted to ask you then, from a portfolio management perspective, and as a professional investor, where are you seeing opportunities for fixed income?
1: Well, as you pointed out, you know we're actually looking at the most attractive yield environment for fixed income investors that we've seen in you know fifteen years. Uh, you know, if you look at the average yield to maturity for the broad Canadian market, it's around four and a half percent. If you're looking at Canadian investment grade high quality corporates, you're looking at a yield to maturity on average of about five and a half in the US market, you know, add 50 basis points to to those numbers. So you're looking at around five percent on average for the aggregate US market, you know, about six percent for high quality corporates in the US market. So overall, you know, it's kind of cliche, but you know, kind of income is back in fixed income, where, you know, if you can earn anywhere from, you know, kind of four and a half to, you know, six or seven in some higher grade corporate bonds. That yield backdrop, I think, is uh, obviously more attractive than it's been in a long time. And I think for most retail investors, that would be a pretty attractive yield environment, income environment, again, for high quality, you know, investment grade, fixed income markets to, to yield, to be able to earn yields, as I say, in the kind of six or, or even six plus percent area. Again, I think there are opportunities, You know, shorter dated, uh, high quality investment grade corporate bonds come to mind as an area of opportunity. As I mentioned, you know, I think the overall rates market and the policy expectations are again much more in line. Uh, so I think we're much closer to fair value in the rates market as well as in the credit market. And so, as I say, as we move a little bit into 2023, as we get closer to the market, kind of wanting to getting getting ahead of that policy pivot on a timeline that I think is realistic. Again, I think the kind of the Fed pivot hopes that we've seen this year were too early but as we move into next year, I think they're going to become on a timeline that's much more realistic. And so I think you do have the opportunity to see those yield levels come down um, and obviously generate some capital gains as well as that income in fixed income. So as I said, you know, near term, the opportunities, uh, you know, I would argue to, to stay prudent and, and stay a little bit cautious, but I do think that there are opportunities um, developing in fixed income into next year that you want to be able to take advantage of as an investor.
0: Is that the framework then for a silver lining in all of this, or is, is there a bigger piece even?
1: No, I, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think, again, you can say you, that you can earn decent income in fixed income now, uh, whereas that was a, a much more difficult conversation to have just a couple of years ago. Again, being able to earn you know mid to higher single digits in investment grade fixed income space, again, is, is compelling. Uh, the fact that you can see both credit risk premiums narrow, as well as the rates market rally. Uh, obviously that uh, is a very powerful combination for returns in fixed income. And I think we're, we're much closer to being in that kind of an environment than we've been for quite a while.
0: You know, one area I know you and I both agree on is some of these scenarios, they're complex. They require a lot of due diligence and, and advice. And, you know, I think dealing with a qualified financial advisor to talk about how portfolio construction is being determined right now is a key piece in all of that. So, you know, on a final question to that note, as the retail investor and many of our listeners are sitting there thinking about what you've discussed today, maybe it's a good time to just say, why do bonds still matter in a diversified portfolio, especially given where we are in, in the current cycle?
1: As you pointed out, you know the environments where where all asset classes perform very poorly have been, you know, very few and far between. And I think that if you look at most scenarios going forward, uh, it's likely to be an environment where. You know, some combination of fixed income, equities, alternatives. You know, is going to perform. You know, very well, and certainly going to perform much better than has performed this year. Again, as you pointed out, is you know, it's only the fourth time um, in the last 60 years essentially or 80 years where all asset classes have performed as poorly as they have. So I would argue that uh, you know the outlook that I have going forward is one where you're going to want to continue to have a well-balanced portfolio that includes. Uh, as I say, fixed income equities and alternatives. I think fixed income with where yields are today, with where risk premiums are today, as I mentioned, I think fixed income is poised to deliver much better total returns than we've seen this year, and thereby be able to contribute much more positively to the overall performance in a balanced portfolio. If we're still going to see, um, you know, a a recessionary environment next year, you know, that may be uh, an environment that still presents challenges more broadly to risk assets, but it would be an environment that could be very positive overall for fixed income. If we do see a more meaningful slowdown in growth and a more meaningful decline in yields, you could see the fixed income portion of your portfolio you know, generating the lion's share of positive returns and a balanced mandate. So I think with income levels where they are, with the potential for capital gains from lower uh, rates, as well as narrowing uh, risk premiums, uh, again, I think fixed income should continue to play a, a, an important and a key part in a balanced mandate. And as I say, next year, you know, you may see fixed income being the the asset class that that helps deliver some of the best returns.
0: As I said, there was a lot to unpack here, and I think you've given us a really good overview of where we are currently. And for all of our listeners today, I think the next logical step is to talk to your financial advisor about how your portfolios are currently positioned and and where you can glean some of those opportunities. So really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Great. Thanks very much, Mark. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you'd like to get any more information about what we've discussed, please feel free to visit us at dynamic.ca. And as always, we continue to press heavily on the fact that we believe in investing with advice through the services of a qualified financial advisor. We hope everyone is continuing to stay safe and we look forward to speaking with you all soon. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or
2: visit our website at dynamic.com. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns including changes in unit values, and reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.